Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame. I'm your host, Frank, and this is another one of my first look episodes, in which I'll be looking at the player cards of Threads of Fate, the first Mythos pack in the Forgotten Age cycle. But before I begin, if you've seen anything on Facebook or heard on a previous episode about the Labyrinths of Lunacy event that we're holding in London on the 1st of July... At the time of recording, this is Thursday the 14th of June, there are five spaces left. So if you're thinking about coming and you've not yet decided whether or not to email drawntotheflamepodcast at gmail.com, now is your time to go and email drawntotheflamepodcast at gmail.com because who knows, those places might go very soon. Super excited. It means we've already got 31 people signed up. It's going to be amazing. But yeah, if we can get up to 36, that'll be really cool for the full gamut of three different tables of labyrinths of lunacy all at the same time. For this first look, unfortunately it's just me. There have been a couple of people emailing in saying that they really enjoy first looks where there's someone else to bounce ideas off, to discuss with, who can jump in when I'm pausing and trying to think of something to say. But regrettably, Peter hasn't gone into this pack blind, so he's not available, and a couple of other people who have asked couldn't make it for this pack. So it's just me, but I'll do my best to be uh, insightful and full of useful comments and try and keep things lively. Maybe I could do voices and I could make up different personalities that could all talk to each other. I'm not sure about that, but maybe. And I've noticed, by the way, that Peter and I both say interesting quite a lot. And I've realised that it's a little bit of a drawn to the flame sort of it has a meaning that we both understand but maybe we've never elaborated to you the listener which is that often when I say interesting I mean I've not quite worked out the strength of this card or whether or not something I'm describing is actually good but because I'm not really a pessimistic person who says well that's rubbish I'm more likely to say oh interesting or hmm and it means sort of like more thinking is to be done so yeah if you hear me say interesting in this episode that's probably what it means and maybe it's a cue to have a drink if you're taking part in the numerous drawn to the flame drinking games the only other thing I'll say by way of introduction to these episodes is of course I'm only one person and I've realized recently particularly there was a really good discussion actually on the fantasy flight games forum for Arkham Horror about the meta game and where we're at And what really struck me reading other people's comments was how this game can really support an individual meta within your own home. Certain cards can be auto-include cards, I'm doing air quotes, or binder fodder. You really don't know if a card's good or not unless you try it, but also it can be really hard within that kind of domestic meta for a card to break in. So for instance, Peter and I have talked about Academic Army a fair bit on the podcast, but we did have someone write in saying they'd never try Academic Army because there's Dr. Milan. Why would you want to run these inferior seeker allies in a deck when you could just run Milan? And it's hard to argue against, but it's also something where I think, but why wouldn't you try them? And why wouldn't you experiment? And it just made me think that that actually the meta is probably a lot more diverse, but unless you're playing with lots of different groups of people and To be honest with us, most of us aren't. Most of us are playing with two to three, no, one to three other people. Can't do my maths. So that kind of keeps things, it keeps your meta quite static, I think, or my meta quite static. So one of the challenges for these first look episodes will be to try and think outside the box and think about the applications that might not be the common ones, but might be something interesting there's that word, or challenging and shake things up a little bit. And I think that what goes 
hand in hand with that is that I, I have felt like the Forgotten Age investigators have introduced some really enjoyable and different archetypes to how you play. Ursula is still that classic seeker, but her emphasis on movement and the addition of, is it Unearth the Ancients, just allows the way that Seekers set up to slightly change, I think, and the reliance on resources to shift just in a small fashion, but enough for it to be noticeable. Then, of course, Mateo, like Jim, is really challenging mystic players to create that kind of control mystic that really cares about the chaos bag and manipulating the tokens in it, but maybe sacrifices some of the kind of just brute force or power of an Agnes or a Kachi. So that's really interesting as well. So we'll have to keep in mind that when we're thinking about cards, it's less useful to think about a faction and more useful to think about an archetype or an investigator. And I know that Matt Newman said that himself on our Carcosa interview with him. He wants a card for each investigator or each build per cycle rather than, say, 10 Guardian cards that all Guardians will take. He just wants each kind of investigator or style to be catered for in some way. So that will be the challenge, I think, rather than just thinking, so does Roland take this card? Does Zoe take this card? Does Mark take this card? Does Leo take this card? Does Skids take this card? Does Yorick? Does Lola? You know, there's, there's too many now in terms of factions to look at in that way. So I think we're going to try and hone in a little bit more. Okay, preamble over. Let's flip these cards. If you're doing, if you're listening along, good luck. I'm going to do them in order this time. I'm thinking about maybe I might start at the back in a future episode. But for this episode, the first one of the Forgotten Age, let's let's jump in and see what we get. Okay. Oh, the first card is Scene of the Crime. It's a two-cost Guardian event. It has combat and intellect icons. It's insight and bold traited and Bold mano a mano means first action. Yeah, here we go. Play only as your first action. Discover one clue at your location. Two clues instead if there is an enemy at that location. This action does not provoke attacks of opportunity. Oh my goodness. Wow. Two costs. So it's like working a hunch. It's not fast though. And you have to play it as your first action potentially pay two to just get two clues testlessly without getting hit? I mean, if you have something like a whippoorwill at your location or some other enemy that you can then see off really easily, this could be incredibly useful. You could also combo this with on the hunt to deliberately search for an enemy so that you can use the drawing of that enemy to get clues. It's definitely not cheap at two. I mean, it's not expensive, but it's yet another thing that guardians need to invest in but yeah testless clues is strong i've thought for a little while that playing solo guardian unless you're roland you've got to have a really good plan for how you get clues and even if there isn't an enemy at your location just discovering a clue first action and moving on for no test is okay two two resources for one clue it's it's okay-ish. I mean, people have been play- paying too with keen eye to boost intellect just to try and investigate. I like it. I mean, I think someone like Roland, who has better ways of getting clues, art student at least gives you a body, working a hunch is fast. Maybe this would have to really fight to get included in that deck. But for plenty other guardians, this is really useful. And particularly at that point when you're starting to be a bit mobbed, playing this 
just to scoop up some clues, say on that final location that you want to clear all the clues from before you advance really strong they can contribute in some way to that and then start hitting enemies and worth noting that you you don't have to have the enemy engage with you so if you're playing four player and someone else draws an enemy you can play this first action get two clues and then engage that enemy and kill them or take a couple of shots at the enemy if they're happy with you doing that nice lovely strong simple first card i love that the icons are the same as on the hunt as well it's the two aggressive the two progress stats combat and intellect which is just really nice, as in this is another tool in that sort of tempo or aggressive style of Guardian that wants to crack on with things. Cool. Nice start. Oh, wow. Stranger Things, eat your heart out. The second card is Marksmanship. This is a two-cost event as well, but it costs an XP. And the art by Alexander Kozachenko looks like the First World War, a rifleman holding his rifle in a slightly funny way, but yeah, shooting at a massive beastie. Okay, it has combat and agility icons. It's a tactic. Mark, I imagine, likes it. Fast. Play when you activate the fight ability on a firearm or ranged asset. Now, ranged affects the avian thralls so far, but we've yet to see an item asset or any asset with ranged on it. So I think this is just future-proofing for ranged. But firearm is, is all the guns. Lightning gun all the way down to 45 automatic or derringer. So yeah, play when you activate the fight ability. This attack can target an enemy at a connecting location. Ignore the aloof and retaliate keywords for this attack. If this attack succeeds against an enemy not engaged with you, the attack does plus one damage. Is this... The Springfield saving grace. Probably not because it's yet another experience to put in and it's a one-off event, but you can keep it on stick to the plan and potentially use it at that time you want to fire your lightning gun shot from your location to connecting location against a nasty big enemy that has retaliate. It's worth noting that the Harbinger of Volusia has retaliate and can retaliate even when exhausted. Taking pot shots at the Harbinger from a distance isn't necessarily a bad thing, or rather is a very good thing. And particularly if you're targeting enemies not engaged with you, you're actually, for the cost of two, essentially adding a vicious blow, minus the combat icon, but adding that extra damage. And extra damage is always useful, even for the Guardians who have lots of damage on tap. So you could pay two to take a shot with a 45 automatic for three damage. You could pay two to take a shot with the, the shotgun for two to six damage, which is pretty nice. Lightning gun's up to four as well. I actually, I have the same reservation I had about Scene of the Crime. It's a two-cost event. <laughs> I like packing my events with zero and one-cost events, and it would be really great to see more resource generation in Guardian, because having that pool of resources so that you can be seen of the criming for two and grabbing two clues and then taking a pot shot with marksmanship like having enough resources so that you can do that thing will become really useful i wonder if leo's ally reduction will really prove helpful for making sure that you can afford that or maybe we'll see more guardians taking cash level three just to ensure that they have enough resources and can and can make the most of these events 
Because if you stuck, stuff a deck full of two-cost events, you'll actually run out of resources fairly swiftly once you've also played a weapon and an ally. Although, having said playing a weapon, if you sleight of hand a weapon, you're paying one for it for the turn. Potentially, you sleight of hand a weapon, shoot something engaged with you, and marksmanship take a shot at an, an enemy that's that's been drawn on a location next to you if you're if you're playing with other people. Or if cultists have spawned, if acolytes or wizard of the order have spawned at neighbouring locations, rather than the guardian having to trudge back to the place they were before to deal with them to get rid of the doom, you can be firing pot shots behind you, which is quite nice. With a vicious blow, a forty-five automatic can one-shot and hunting night gaunt as well, which is kind of great. So if you don't draw the night gaunt and your buddy does, you can just take one shot over and kill them off. Sort of awesome. Okay, nice. The first seeker card. Wow, it's almost like a it's almost like sort of a punch and judy art, which is slightly weird. The first seeker card is persuasion. This is a two cost event. Wow, there's a theme of two cost events. Willpower and intellect icons. It's insight and trick traded. Parlay. Choose a non-weakness humanoid enemy at your location and test intellect three. This test gets plus X difficulty where X is that enemy's horror value. If you succeed, shuffle the chosen enemy into the encounter deck. If the chosen enemy is elite, automatically invade it, evade it instead. My goodness, it's sort of complicated. With fine clothes, you can make the test a test of one. How many humanoid enemies deal horror? Not that many. I would guess that Silas Bishop is a humanoid enemy and probably does one. But beyond that, well, let's find out. So I've just taken the most cursory look at Arkham DB. And of course, ghouls are all humanoids. The cultists in Midnight Masks are humanoid. The serpents of Yig and the serpent from Yoth are humanoid. And is Silas there? Did I get that right? No, Seth is humanoid, the sorcerer. That's who I thought of with a horror on him. The organist is humanoid as well. That's kind of interesting. The strength, as I see it, of a card like this, I'm not going to go through all of the humanoids, but the strength is that our seekers, apart from Ursula, have lowish agility. Rex is three, Min and Daisy are two, Norman is a one. Providing them with another way of evading that's not mind over matter seems to me a good thing. And this is a, a one-off event that allows them to use their strong suit stat intellect to make up for a deficiency in another statistic. Most humanoids don't do horror, or maybe lots of them do, and I'm just thinking of the humanoids as the mobster and Obanian's thug. Maybe lots of humanoids actually do do horror, and I'm just missing that, messing that up. It's a great argument for running fine clothes if you're if you're going to run persuasion as well. I wonder if it's a, almost a panic button one of just for that protection. I suppose if something like Wizard of the Order again, like acolytes dealing with cultists with doom on them, just like how useful dumb luck is for getting rid of those things. If this is a way that a seeker could get rid of Wizard of the Order, that's only an evade two, but you'd be testing three with this, doesn't do any horror, so it's just an intellect three test to shuffle that enemy away and get rid of all the doom on it. That's pretty useful. 
paying two to shuffle away is, yeah, it's quite nice. And because it's a parlay, it doesn't provoke a tax of opportunity either, which is helpful. I think it's a very thematic way that seekers can deal with enemies. Next is Shrewd Analysis. Now, this was a card that was announced. It's an asset with no cost, and that is because it's permanent and it's limit one per deck. It's a talent. Anytime you upgrade a card with the unidentified or untranslated subtitle, here's looking at you, Glyphs, Solution, and Ancient Stone, you may upgrade a second copy of that card at no experience cost. If you do, the two upgraded versions are chosen at random from among the eligible options. You must still meet all deck building restrictions. So as a permanent with no cost and no XP, this could be a card in any Seeker's deck at no restriction, which is kind of great. If you're even just thinking about running the glyphs in case you want to upgrade them, you could take this and you're getting three experience worth of cards for free once you've upgraded the glyphs. Likewise, it saves you four XP for the Strange Solution, but there are more options of Strange Solution to choose from which means you're less likely to get the one you want. All that's well and good. Do you want to gamble? If you do, you can save some XP if you take this card. Obviously, if you realise you really don't want to gamble and there's only one you want to take, there's no reason that you have to take Shrewd Analysis. And indeed, if you have taken it and you change your mind, you're in a bit of a pickle because you can't remove permanent cards from your deck because there's, there's no way of removing them because they're not part of your deck which that ruling came up with Charon's Obble, that essentially once you commit to it, you're locked in. So that's worth noting. The other thing worth noting is this is a useful card for Lola, because it actually it counts as one of the seven cards of a faction for her, I believe, because it's a permanent card. So if for some reason you wanted to only run six Seeker cards in your deck, because you wanted to run more of another faction... You could take Shrewd Analysis without any plan to upgrade to upgrade the glyphs she can take. No plan to do that, simply to get around her restrictions slightly. So slightly edge case, but slightly good. There's another cool thing about this card. Peter, we all know Peter, has actually already been in touch with Matt Newman about how the upgrading works. Because it says the two upgraded versions are chosen at random from among the eligible options. And is the eligible options the physical cards you own. So for Strange Solution, that would be two copies of Acidic Icor, two copies of Freezing Variant, and two copies of Restorative Concoction. Or is it, are the eligible options simply Acidic Icor, Freezing Variant, Restorative Concoction? The two different ways of choosing, I'll try and explain. If it was the first way, and you got Acidic Icor as your first random choice, that would mean you'd only have a 20% chance of choosing Acidic I-Core as your second choice because there'd only be one copy of the I-Core and two copies of the others. So the chance of getting the same one would be diminished. But if the eligible options, and I'm doing air quotes, is simply I-Core, Restorative Concoction and Freezing Variant, when you choose the first time round, you have a 33% chance of getting the I-Core. And when you choose the second time round, you still have a 33% chance of getting the I-Core because it's part of your collection. So what this also means, I mean, I came up with a slightly absurd example as we were talking about this. In theory, if you really wanted to stack the deck 
with with a collection you could buy a second copy of i think it's where doom awaits where the strange solution came out and then tear up the copies of freezing variant and restorative concoction so your collection would be four copies of the icor and only two of the other ones and you'd somehow sort of jig it in your favor but matt's actually got back to peter with a ruling which is it's the second option so the eligible options is a, a sort of a one-off of each And for each random choice, you're not removing cards from your collection to change the probability. The probability stays static of getting any single option for each choice. Have I explained that well enough? The more I talk about it, the more confused I'm getting. It's the risk of one voice rather than two. I'll be adding that ruling to ArkhamDB. But the point really is that for each choice you make, you make a note of all of the possible choices it could be and choose at random. So you're not removing cards from your collection with each choice you make. Is that really useful for thinking about this card? I think it makes it slightly stronger because it gives you slightly more of a chance of getting the pair you want. And I also just like the idea of this card because that suits my playstyle. that I don't mind the gamble. You know, unless I'm playing Seeker solo and I really need Acidic Icores, that's going to be one of my ways of dealing with enemies. I mean, now I could be thinking about persuasion, but unless that's what I'm really betting on, normally I'm happy to kind of roll with the punches and do things a little bit slapdash. But that's just me as a player. I'm sure there'll be players out there who decry this card because they have a specific upgrade plan in mind. And that upgrade plan means that they want Guiding Stones rather than Prophecy Foretold, or they want Freezing Variant rather than whatever else. So that I can see, you know, people just wouldn't take this. But if you don't mind what the outcome is, if you're wanting to play that like slightly reactive style, then yeah, give it a punt. Now we go to the first rogue card. It looks magnificent. Dual, oh, Dual Brush, <laughs> Dual. Dual Brush Studios. Dual Brush Studios have produced this piece of art. It's a cigarette case with an elder sign on it. There are some chips and some dice and it's on like a reed matting and the card is called Lucky Cigarette Case. So that works well with the Elder Sign. It's a two-cost asset. Wow, apart from Shrewd Analysis, twos across the board. It has a single willpower icon, and it takes up the accessory slot. Flavor, it's not really all that lucky, just in the mood for a smoke. Typical rogue, underplaying their abilities. It's item and charm traded, and it has a reaction ability. After you succeed at a skill test by two or more, exhaust lucky cigarette case, Draw one card. Wow. Okay. That seems pretty nice to me. I think what's nice about it is you can play this down and then just have it there. And when you go for broke with your big succeed by two play, watch this double or nothing, quick thinking, all of those good cards slung in there. If it lands and your hand has been drained of its cards and you're sort of essentially somewhat weakened by the play, this already is a step towards refilling your hand and rebuilding. I like it. It makes me think of pickpocketing, actually. It's just got a whole host more uses because it can just be sitting there. There is that chance that, say, playing a schizo tool, you pull an Elder Sign, which gives you a plus two. And if you've already got this in play, just get another card. We've talked before about how rogues are hurting for card draw. And this is quite an interesting response to that shortage because it's not guaranteed card draw. It's only good if you're leaning into a style where you're going to smash tests, and that is never guaranteed. 
So it's not the kind of card draw that's going to reliably get you cards every turn. But if you're running lockpicks, any rogue is going to be investigating at a decent value. And that can turn into cards quite quickly, I would say. So it could be a nice little engine with that. I wonder if there are any ways of getting it into play quickly. I mean, if you're playing as Leo or Skids and you're running Ever Vigilant, getting this down for one cost as part of your kind of asset dump at the start of a turn, would be, at the start of the game even, would be really nice as a setup play. But this is then just going to give you a drip of draw. Generally speaking, as a player, I'm aware that I really like drawing cards. And that's one of the pieces of feedback I've been given from the live plays I've done, is that I draw a lot. And I think other players are more happy to allow that just upkeep drip of cards as a way of managing their hand. But definitely one of the gaps in the succeed by two archetype is a way of replenishing once you've made that big play or committed those three or four cards. So I can see this sneaking into that gap. That'd be cool. Yeah. If I got four or five cards out of a scenario from this, I'd be pleased. Yeah. The next card is also Rogue. It's a three-cost asset. Ah, Fence, letting down the team. Everything was two until now. And it's got one XP cost as well. It's an asset, and it has a single agility icon. That's what we like to see in Rogue. It's called Fence. It has an illustration of a man with sort of keys, and it looks like he's exporting. He's got a bunch of weapons and also an octopus, which is good fencing. It's not actually an ally, though. It's connection and elicit flavor. Don't worry, I know a guy, Leo DeLuca. I'm guessing that's not Leo in the picture, but yeah, this must be the fence. Connection, that is a new trait, I think, as well. Reaction, when you play an illicit card during your turn, exhaust fence. The illicit card gains fast. If it was already fast... Reduce its cost by one instead. Oh, I like that because as I read the first sentence, I was thinking, but Finn's trusty 32, is it called? And Switchblade level two, they're already fast. Like, this doesn't help. So you can make a fast Lupara. You can make, uh, and pickpocketing is also fast, the level two version. You can make a fast burglary, which is kind of cool. I mean, you've already paid three to get fence down, though. But nicely, this doesn't take up a slot or anything like that. So if you've invested the one XP in it, it's potentially saving you multiple actions in that fin deck that's just having a lot of fun with Illicit. Cool. Nice. Uh, three cost is, it's got to be good. You want, you want to get the most out of that. What this does is it provides that really interesting, hard-to-gauge ability that a bunch of cards in your hand will actually have gained text but it won't feel like it because all you've played is fence. So that's kind of cool. I mean, I really enjoyed the rogue patient style of waiting till you've drawn an enemy in before you get your weapons out. So that's my jam anyway, but this feeds into that even more. You know, holding on to that Derringer, holding on to the Chicago typewriter if you've gone that way, holding on to lockpicks until you know you need to transition into investigating. You can do all of that. I mean, essentially as well, you play fence and immediately the next card you play, you get the action for it because you can exhaust fence and give it fast. So that's really nice. I think Finn will be a natural home for it just because of his synergy with illicit cards, but it might creep up in other places as well. Creep up, crop up. Okay, we're optimistic. So far, like 
incredibly strong packs. Sometimes the first packs of a cycle are like still they're just sort of building on the themes of the deluxe and they're just sort of filling out some space. But this feels immediately like interesting, powerful cards. Interesting, not in the drawn to the flame way, just in genuinely intriguing way. Okay, the first Mystic card. This is the other card that I think was announced. It's uh, unless one of the survivor ones? No, I don't think so. This is Arcane Research. The art is beautiful in the flesh. It's like an amazing spellbook with things coming off the page. It's Dimitri Bilak's art. It's also permanent and has no cost, and it's a talent like Shrewd Analysis. It's not Limit 1 per deck, though. When you purchase Arcane Research, suffer one mental trauma, which... Given that this is a mystic card, they're normally all right with horror. They have fearless to heal horror. They have clarity of mind if you want to go that way. It's worth noting that this isn't limit one per deck, though. So you could take two mental trauma and take two arcane research. Because it's permanent, it doesn't affect your deck size. You'd still take your full deck, but you'd be starting on two horror every single scenario. After each scenario of a campaign, reduce the experience cost of the first spell card you upgrade before the next scenario by one. So I have Shriveling level zero. I want to take the level three. If I have this card, I could get the first one for two XP and the second one for three. So I'd save one XP. But of course, I probably wouldn't want to upgrade them both after the same scenario, because if I only upgrade one, I can use the discount again to upgrade the other the following scenario after the following scenario. So that's worth bearing in mind. In terms of targets for this, it's worth noting that you're upgrading a spell card, so you have to have the lower level version to upgrade into. And that, I think, is slightly tricky. So I really like the idea of this in Norman, but then I don't run the lower level versions of spells in Norman because you only get five level zero mystic cards. I'd run other things instead. So really your targets are Blinding Light, Rite of Seeking, Ward of Protection, Scrying and Shriveling. I think that's it at the moment, although there might be some I'm forgetting or more to come. So potentially in terms of discount, you're looking at 6 or 7 XP, depending on how you target, which is really good. I mean, Charon's Obble can get you 10 XP over the course of a 12 XP, 10 XP. Pay 2 for it, get the 2 back, 5 more, 10 XP, yeah. So this is up there. I guess if you took it at the start, you're going to do upgrading after seven scenarios. So that would get you seven. If you took two of them, you'd say 14. Pretty good. And one ruling that Matt has announced about this as well is that you actually can reduce the cost of an upgrade to zero. So if you're upgrading Blinding Light zero to Blinding Light two, and you have two copies of Arcane Research, the first upgrade would be minus two, which would be zero. And by upgrading rules... Uh, originally that would be it would always cost one but Matt said that actually it should cost zero in this instance but I can't remember the ruling perfectly so go on to Arkham DB look up this card and you can see his words exactly as he explains that situation but yeah it's good I'll tell you someone who's nuts about this card Peter he thinks it's amazing and he's done a lot of thinking about it and the kind of progression of a mystic and how Combined with Delve Too Deep, these two cards can mean you can go for some really big investments. And it means you can also invest in some of those cards that you wouldn't invest in normally because you're trying to upgrade your core strengths, your spells. So you could get Arcane Initiate Level 3 or Seal of the Elder Sign, these cards that are like glamorous or Time Warp that you want, 
but you're like, well, I could take that or I could save the, the experience and just get Right of Seeking 4 or Shriveling 5 or whatever else it is. Yeah, he has things to say about that. I mean, spells are the central strength of mystics. Matt said that he just wants to keep leaning into spells or things that support spells, which is great. And this is just another way of doing that. Again, no surprise that it's in the campaign that we've already seen trauma floating around. So pack that healing if you've not already packed it, because it will be useful. The next card is Mystic as well. It is smashing art. Everything about this is wicked. Purple art, a guy holding an Elder Sign. He's got a little beard. Flavor, not on my watch. Ooh, it's Spell and Blessed. And it's our first 2 XP card, and it's 2 cost. We're back into the 2 cost bracket. 2 cost event, 2 XP, counterspell, willpower and intellect icons. It's spell and blessed, fast, play when a skull, cultist, tablet, or elder thing, chaos token, is revealed during a skill test at your location. Cancel that chaos token. Do not reveal a new chaos token to replace it. Oh my goodness. Wow. Just pay two. Blink. No no token. If you've drawn one of the nasty ones. It's a sort of hyper defiance. And you know who really likes this? Seth. Oh my goodness. Copy this three times. Just keep cancelling the nasty tokens. Oh, and combination. This and Dark Prophecy. Fish for one of the tokens and then cancel it. I mean, it's a pretty elaborate way of just not drawing a token. But that's, yeah, that could be a thing. I guess also if you reveal a token and you're like, oh no, it has a dreadful effect this time round, like the Elder thing being an autofail if you're poisoned. You're like, nope, not anymore. Smashing. All I can see is the challenge of trying to get it to fit into decks. And because you're waiting for one of those specific tokens, it could be really tricky. Oh, if you're running Grotesque Statue as well, nice. You could draw a minus five and a skull and then draw the skull, and then cancel it anyway to succeed, which would be really sweet. Really cool. Nice, strong card. I can see it having a lot of uses. I can see it being one of those cards that sneaks in. It's probably going to end up in my Norman deck. I can just see that happening. So yeah, really darn exciting. And no has grown into not on my watch, which is good. Okay, and... We're on to the survivors. Oh, wow. And it's two cards per faction, this this pack. No more, no less. Okay. The first survivor card, two cost event. The theme of two. If the last card has something to do with if your deck has all two cost cards in it, you could build a Lola deck with like all of these cards and do something with that, which would be crazy, but could be good. I don't know. Sorry, I'm a bit distracted because... Peter is messaging me going, call me! I think he's just played Threads of Fate and is very excited. I've yet to play it, so I am much calmer. But now let's look at this card. This is uh, Perseverance. It's a spirit card. It has two willpower icons. Fast. Play when you are assigned damage and or horror that would defeat you. Cancel up to four of that damage and or horror. Calloused hands and a determined heart were all she needed. Another... Dual Brush Studios card, which is amazing. I mean, it says Calistans and a Determined Heart were all she needed, but she's got a rope on her belt. That, I mean, I can see that. I'm a pro climber. Bit funny. Who is that? Is that Wendy? Jungle Wendy? Maybe. Okay, I'm getting distracted. This is sweet Calvin tech, right? A two-cost 
double willpower icon. I, like, I mean, I like paired icons if you're doing Yaotl, which is kind of nice. And then you can also just protect yourself when you've miscalculated your damage and horror. I mean, it sits in your hand slightly, but if you're playing that Calvin, really pushing it, getting to that sweet 5555 stat line, then you want some kind of overflow or panic button, and this might be just the right thing you need. And also, it's cancelling four damage or horror, which is like a hit from a 2-2 enemy you weren't expecting, or also some nasty failing a test by three and taking three horror, or failing a test by three and taking three damage. Some kind of only the tentacle will fail me situation where you draw the tentacle. So that's pretty cool card. Two costs to stay alive. Yeah, I like it. I, I, I think it's strong. I mean, to cancel five damage or horror in Guardian, you need to spend four XP and you get two cost reduction. So yeah, this is pretty good. It's worth noting that it is defeat that this protects against. So drawing this earlier when you early when you've not taken any damage or horror is somewhat irritating. I guess in Wendy you use it as fuel just to discard and redraw. Same in Ashcan. Might even find a place in Silas as well, actually. He has weakish willpower and only a sanity of five. Ashcan has five as well, doesn't he? So yeah, any of these slightly Achilles heel spots in Investigators, this can shore that up really nicely. The one, one survivor I've not mentioned, I said I wasn't going to just do full coverage of everyone, but imagine this in Yorick, where you're doing that survival knife, leather coat, a quinner, toe-to-toe style, where you're just taking all enemies onto you and killing them more reactively. Guard dog as well, maybe. Heroic rescue, things like that. There might come a point where you've gone, oh no, I've miscalculated and I'm being mobbed. You think that that's okay. I'll take the small hit, which takes me to one damage and one horror left. And then the big hit, blammo, I persevere. Nice. Hey, I think in our survivor article for FFG, this was one of the headings of one of our sections. Perseverance, perseverance. I, I don't even know how to say the word. But yeah, I mean, you'd say severance, wouldn't you? Perseverance? Perseverance? I don't know. Letters on a postcard, please. Tell me no. Tell me no. Tell me no how I know how to say the word. Thank you. That made sense, right? Yeah, cool card. I like it. Of course, like the card was already designed way before we wrote that article. So I was, I suddenly had this thought of like, hey, it's a coded rap. It's not, Frank. Sorry, mate. Wow. <laughs> the art on the final card. Truly, I have been stunned. That is really cool. This is a skill card, our only skill card in the pack. And I mean, in terms of assets, apart from those two permanents, we just had fence. Everything else was an event. And then we've got one skill card, Stunning Blow. It's a survivor skill card with a single combat icon. It's practiced. (laughs) Flavor text again. Man, flavor win. Three in a row. Thud. If this skill test is successful during an attack, automatically evade the attacked enemy. Wow. It's sort of vicious blow or cheap shot, just in the survivor way, adding in a little evade as a bonus, which is kind of nice. So you can go for that one hit, and if you are not going to kill the enemy off, you chuck in stunning blow to help the hit land, and it frees you up from fleeing from that enemy. I like it. I think it's strong. I think it's really cool. I think it probably has a bunch of applications, but I'm going straight back to the investigator I just mentioned, Yorick. Again, in that mob situation, maybe doing a hit against a smaller enemy that evades it, that then turns on your machete if you're using machete to kill off other enemies, 
that would be quite nice. Or also, it doesn't matter about elite or not as well. So if you can land a hit on a retaliate enemy, obviously you need to pass the test, but you want to do that anyway against retaliate. It's a way of then turning off retaliate for your following two attacks. Or running away if you've realised you've got yourself into a real pickle. I wonder if, for the Harbinger of Volusia, if you land an attack with Stunning Blow and it's also then a successful evade, that would be two resources and you would make the Harbinger disappear if you were playing solo. That could be really interesting. I'll ask people wiser than I and see what people say. What a cracking pack. Genuinely, this has been one of my most fun packs to open. I felt like all of the cards are interesting. I think the ones that the... the I'm smiling because I said interesting. The ones that may be hardest to to think about or analyse are the two permanents, but we've had a long time to think about them, so that felt good. And beyond that, there's just a really interesting mixture. Marksmanship's really cool. Scene of the Crime's really cool. I think Guardians did well. Fence is wicked, as is Lucky Cigarette Case. And maybe Counterspell is sneaking up there as the coolest card of the pack. Although, man, stunning blow. Pipe those snakes. That's a way of doing it. Yeah, poor guy brained to the temple. Cool. I hope you've enjoyed this, but listen after this little break because I'm going to do a patron question. So if you haven't yet looked at our Patreon, we're www.patreon.com forward slash drawn to the flame. Why not go and have a look? And you might spot that one of the tiers you can write in questions that we'll answer on our episodes, but there's a better tier, the Icy Ghoul tier, where you can write in and have our star host, Andrea, <laughs> hello, answer questions. And we've had one of those from one of our patrons, so we're going to answer that now. So Great. Bring it on. Here's the question. It's uh, from Joe. Thanks for writing, Joe. It says, long-time listener, first-time caller. He has a question for Andrea. What's more important in a relationship, friendship or romance? I ask because Fred- I- oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for a good ally for my Zoe Samaras deck, and I'm torn between Brother Xavier and Leo DeLuca. And I've just realised as I'm reading this out, Joe, that you were playing Zoe Samaras at Labyrinth of Lunacy last time we played. So I'm sorry that we've not got this answer oh, no. to you sooner. But yeah, so so Joe goes on to say, Xavier and Zoe get on well and have a lot in common. Their devotion to their faith, a shared interest in eviscerating hideous monsters, and a mutual loathing of hot pants, although for entirely different reasons. <laughs> I don't know where you get that knowledge from, Joe. But Leo, he's a charming and handsome and very generous with the communion wine. And she's worried, uh, but she's worried that while his middle name might be the Louisiana Lion, a more accurate moniker would be Ulterior Motive. Ooh. Please, can you help a poor and only slightly psychotic chef whose heart is torn? The chef is Zoe. I was about to say, does he mean, <laughs> Joe, is that you? Are you the psychotic chef? Um, or is it Zoe? I, but I can see from Zoe's card, um, and this is the first time that I've obviously been looking at these cards. It's a little, it's a little <laughs> sneaky Andrea first look as well. Um, uh, at the cards in question. So thank you very much for your question, Joe. I'm, uh, I'm very flattered that, um, that you've chosen this level and, um, and put your fate or rather Zoe's fate in my hands. Obviously my very experienced hands. So you're saying, Frank, that actually Joe did play as her. So, so it'd be interesting to know who you did choose. Joe in the end. Oh, wow. Well, this is interesting. That, well, (laughs) yeah, there you go. Who did Joe choose? That's who I say he should choose. No. (laughs) 
I am going to answer your question seriously and thoroughly, obviously. So I'm just going to take it and just take a look at, at the three people in question. So Zoe seems slightly terrifying. I'm guessing that she's not a vegetarian um, because <laughs> she's got a load of meat or a load of meat, a load of blood all over her her carving knife there, um, it or her mean steak she knife. She necessarily but... eats them though. Just it's true, but she doesn't seem to shy away from no. from blood and gore, which <laughs> makes me think that she's uh, she's quite uh, um, uh, strong. Well, she also looks a bit like Gillian Anderson, which is quite interesting. So God has spoken, I will do his work without hesitation with a large knife in my hand. So that's Zoe. And brother Xavier, is that how you're pronouncing it? Kind of looks kind of scary. Seems to have, are those his tentacles that are coming out around the back? Has he got like a big tentacly tail? Or is that a I monster? It's a monster. Okay. And, Maybe um, he might have a tentacle. <laughs> and he's got a gun like Zoe had a knife. And what's his little, has he got a little quote? No. Not really. Pure of spirit. He is pure of spirit. And he's yeah. a brother. So, you know, they got uh, they got the whole God thing in common, as you say, Joe. Um, and then the uh, the other man is uh, Leo De Luca, the Louis- Louisiana lion. Which makes him sound like some kind of American footballer or something. Um, he's got a kind of Indiana Jones vibe going on here. And he's, um, his quote is, I was born in Mississippi. Louisiana just sounded better. So he's it's pretty, pretty cool dude. Thank yeah. you very much. When he said, Joe, about, um, well, put it this way. I think your answer is in your question basically, because um, you basically, I, I, you say, Xavier and Zoe get on well and have a lot in common. Their devotion to their faith is shared interest in eviscerating hideous monsters, which made me think of me and Frank. We have a lot in common <laughs> too, um, like that. Um, and the reason, that the, I suppose what I'm trying to get to here is that I think you answer your own question because it's pretty clear from how you phrased your question to me what your gut instinct is. I think... Your gut instinct is that it is Brother Xavier. And because you're bigging him up about their shared interests. And um, and Leo, you're like, well, he's charming and handsome, but eh. um, what does that count for, really? Um, and you're dead right. Um, I think friendship is the most important thing in a relationship rather than uh, her swallowing off with, um, with Indiana Jones alike, Leo. And also, we don't know what Leo's attitude about hot pants is. For all we know, he's wearing some underneath those <laughs> he could be. car keys. Yes, yes, exactly. Which Zoe would hate. Absolutely. I don't think yours, or your or Zoe's heart is quite as torn as your as your as you think it is, Joe. I think you've revealed your answer in how you phrased it, and I am a great believer in life with going in going with one's gut. You could have just stopped it. You're a great believer. <laughs> yeah. and I saw her face now I'm a great believer yes so go with your gut I think your gut instinct is telling you that it should be brother saviour and um, it sounds like that's actually what you decided anyway so hooray that's, that's why I would have advised anyway so I think the lesson here is you don't have to actually give any more money to Patreon to ask me to answer your questions you just, you just know trust your gut yourself. yeah the answer lies within you oh I don't know support some Patreon to look within yourself for the answer you need that's good yeah, yeah. That makes sense yeah great <laughs> <laughs> So um, thank you very much, Joe the Fish, for your question. Yeah, thanks, Joe. We'll keep answering our patron questions. You can find me on all the usual places, drawn to the flame, essentially everywhere. And thank you very much for listening. Let me know what you thought. Bye. Bye.